that being said, today is Aristotle. How many of you like Aristotle? Good. What do you like about it? Yeah. Oh, man, no. Okay. Yeah. He is practical. Yeah. Um, he makes good common sense. Aristotle believes that there's a chair in front of me or a table in front of me. Yeah, pretty much that's right. Uh, he's made his peace with the external world, which Plato never managed to do. What else? Yeah, I feel like he's almost too practical. Like I remember reading a couple of times, you're like, yeah, duh, like I know that. Like or he would like relate something. Like together, and I'd be like, "Yeah, it's pretty obvious." Like I feel like everybody knows that, but maybe okay. they didn't. The reason why everybody knows that is because Aristotle, to a great extent, is the guy who invented common sense. <laughs> All right. So yeah, you already know that because you've gotten your Aristotle tenth or twelfth hand. All right. But the reason why so much of what he says is obvious is because he is uh, peculiarly central to the everyday thought that our culture has uh, chosen for itself and chosen for you. All right. Look, he wants to get stuff done. And who can blame him for that? If you've ever seen uh, Raphael's painting, The School of Athens, um, if you haven't, you should look it up. And if you're in Rome, you should certainly see it. It's in the Vatican. Um, it's one of the most amazing paintings. But we got the two main guys, Aristotle and Plato, in the middle. We got all these other deep thinkers. Most of them are supposed to be pre-Socratics, but in fact, they're all Renaissance friends of Raphael. All right. But uh, the two guys we have in the middle are going to be the center of Western philosophy. There's an old man who looks like God the Father. Right? He's got this long white beard and white hair, and he's in this white robe, and he's he looks a little bit like Gandalf, you know. <laughs> He's a, a kind of a funny-looking guy, but he has also the, the aspect of something like a, a Hebrew prophet. And that's if he's come down from the mountaintop, and he intends to tell you some things, and he wants no crap from the likes of you. All right. So he says, look, his, his, all he has to, his, the entirety of his advice. All right. Up. Stop thinking about tables and chairs and the things that you are interested in. All right. None of them are real. What's real? stuff beyond my fingertips. It's so real, you probably don't know anything about it. That's how real it is. On the other hand, Aristotle was a young man in the prime of life. Not young, but a man in the prime of life, 30, 35. Right? He's in vigorous middle age, and Aristotle puts his hand down among this stuff, and he's asking, well, what about all this stuff? And Plato says, oh, it's beneath me. Right? I'm up there. If you don't put ankle weights on Plato, he will drift off the ground. <laughs> it's, it's very hard to keep him on the same earth that we inhabit. All right, that has its pluses and minuses. When he says, "Lift your soul, lift your consciousness away from the booming, buzzing confusion of the world to a higher realm, a clearer realm, a more perfect realm." In a way, what Plato's longing for is heaven. But of course, for Plato, heaven is a place where you know a lot of deep stuff. Right. The rest of the stuff would not be of interest to Plato. He said, what kind of heaven is that? Right. He doesn't want to meet Jesus. He doesn't want to do any of that stuff. He just wants to understand the form of the good. 
once he gets that done, he never tends to do anything else again. And as he actually kind of tends to morph into the form of liquid if he works, if it works out for him. Alright. So Plato looks like God the Father, and he tells us, stop thinking about the stuff in front of you. Stop thinking about the stuff that makes up most of human life. Why? It's a waste of time. Yeah? So correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like they uh, one of the fundamental differences between Aristotle and Plato is that like the way they look at the soul is Plato kind of sees it as a substance and Aristotle looks more like the capacities of the mm -hmm. soul. Well, Aristotle is interested in doing things, which means that he's concerned with praxis, the Greek word for action. All right. Plato thinks that if his philosophy does not produce action, who cares? As long as his philosophy is right, whether you do anything or not, it makes no difference. He doesn't care whether you breathe or eat or stuff. None of that matters. Why? Because you're above that. Yeah. I was confused. Like, It seemed in a way he was kind of going against Plato. Um, it, is. it says, yeah, it says on, uh, I forget what book it is, like eight, or no, no, like early on, book three. He says, and the more he is possessed of virtue in its entirety, and the happier he is, the more he will be pained at the thought of death. For life is best worth living for such man, and he is knowingly losing the greatest goods. So, like, he's kind of going the opposite and saying, like, death is, you'll be worse off in death than, like, and you'll be better on earth if you have all these goods and you're the happiest, but in death you'll be worse off. And that's kind of like the reverse of what Plato was saying. Okay, that's very true. Um, Aristotle thinks that people can be happy here in this world. And it's not just purely a question of turning your mind in the direction of the form of the good. You need the external trappings that make ordinary life possible. For example, you need a certain degree of money. You need a, an appropriate kind of family. Right. You, uh, you need reasonably good looks and reasonably good health. And all of these accidental facts are preconditions for what Aristotle regards as the good life. Now Plato barely believes that such things are real, much less that they're an impediment to the good life. All right. Plato is purely interested in your mind or your soul. Aristotle was interested in the entirety of your life as an integrated whole. And that's very practical. Remember that Plato gives us a very, very demanding, very, very precise theory of knowledge in the myth of the in the myth of the cave, but also in the divided line book six. Right? And at the top is knowledge of the form of the good, and then from that you get knowledge of all the other forms, and below that is math, and below that is objects of sense perception, and below that are imitations. Right. Plato says for objects of sense perception and imitations can't have any knowledge about them because they're not real. Now Aristotle says, well, I understand what you mean when you tell me that the table in front of me isn't real, Plato, but you've just gone too far there. In other words, when, I talk, when we deal with ordinary people, they're under the impression, for good reason actually, that tables and chairs and wars, walls and doors exist. And not only do they exist, but you can know things about them, like how do you get out of the classroom? The answer is through the door. All right. Plato says, well, you know, what if the door is an illusion? Aristotle says, well, what if it is? You know, what do you want me to do? You still, if you want to get out of here, you're going to have to go through the door. 
Plato says, details, details. Aristotle right? says, look, these details are human life. <laughs> They're not details. You're just crazy about these abstractions that have brought you into a, a, an either more or less than human world. Plato would like us to be spirits in the material world. Nice as that possibility is, all these spirits need food and clothing and a whole bunch of other stuff. Well, Plato said, yeah, add that on later. Once they get good souls. Aristotle said, look, you need, it's important to have a good soul, but it's important to pay attention to the world around you. Right? And he's right about that. One of the great lines from the Nicomachean Ethics comes in Book 1, Section 3, where he says, it is the mark of an educated man not to demand more precision from a discipline than it can possibly offer. In other words, when you do arithmetic, you don't get approximate sums when you add up integers, you get exact numbers. Two plus two is four, not 4.1, not 3.99, it's four. All right, a squared plus b squared equals c squared, not approximately c squared, it's exactly the square of the hypothesis, all right? Aristotle says, well, that's great. What about all the other stuff in the world that aren't pure ideas? What do you want to do with that? Plato says, we shove those down below the divided line to stuff you get an opinion about, but real philosophers don't think about that stuff. And Aristotle says, so real philosophers don't think about houses to live in, or food to eat, or air to breathe, right? He says, yeah. Right? And Aristotle says, look, he, what Aristotle is, is the best possible student because he listens to his teacher, he thinks about what his teacher tells him, and then he says, I believe this and I don't believe that. The stuff I believe, I believe because your arguments seem persuasive. The stuff I don't believe, I believe for a reason, and here are my reasons. See, what Plato's trying to do, yeah. Very just going off of that, you, you want to emphasize that Aristotle's talking about very practical. But if you read his metaphysics, it could have been from straight out of the Republic. That's right. He's totally willing to go high into these realms of theory. And he has all the answers to the questions that Plato asks. Well, not, not the right answers, but he has answers yeah. to all those questions. It's just that he has the practice going too. Right. Aristotle has one book of metaphysics. All of Plato's metaphysics. One way or another. All right. Um, Plato likes the the like spinning intellectual spider webs. And this web he constructed is the largest I've ever seen. I mean, you wouldn't think that human beings could do this. Put together a, a set of words and, and kind of uh, abstract ideas that's very, very thin, but amazingly extensive. Aristotle says, no, we're putting together something solid, something that's gonna last. Something people can do stuff with. So Aristotle says, look, there are two kinds of knowledge, Plato. You're wrong about knowledge. Plato says, look, there's only one kind of knowledge. Knowledge of things that never change, that's mathematical knowledge, and knowledge of the forms. Aristotle says, granted, that's a kind of knowledge, but that's not all knowledge is. All right? There are lots of other kinds of knowledge that involve interaction with the world around us and these activities, these kinds of knowledge, don't give you the same degree of precision 
nor do they give you the same degree of certainty that pure, logical, platonic knowledge does. Here's an example. Building a house. All right. Some people are skilled carpenters, and some people are not. That's a fact. Okay. To build a house, you need people that have the appropriate skills that know how to assemble a house, and how to cut wood, and drive nails, and do all the stuff that is involved in putting a house together. Okay. You do not need absolute platonic precision in a practical activity like building a house. Um, when a carpenter is building a house, he has two by fours out there, and he cuts them to within, say, an eighth of an inch. That's a reasonable amount of give and take, of kind of plus and minus, for cutting two by fours. Right? Now, if you wanted to, and you want to be really, really serious and really exact, you could go out there, and you could look down to the, to the level of the micron, all right. And you could cut the wood at exactly that place. Then you'd have, well, Plato would say, yeah, that's closer to being wood, but it's really not wood because it's still taking up space and stuff. So no matter how precisely you cut it, Plato's still not going to be happy with it. All right. Aristotle's going to say, look, within an eighth of an inch, cut it and put it up. Plato says, what kind of thing is that? Cut it and put it up. It's not precisely fitted into the place where it's supposed to go. Kind of knowledge is this. Aristotle would say it's practical knowledge, like how to build a house. If we wait for the Platonic carpenter to cut the first two by four properly, we are going to wait forever because he's never going to cut it properly. Aristotle says, Well, look, uh, I have a limited amount of time to wait on this. Um, put the house up. Okay. So, carpentry is an example of a practical kind of activity that's a practical knowledge. Some people know how to put up houses, some people don't, all right? If you ask them, tell me about the principles of house building, he'd say, well, it actually, I could tell you about it, but it'd actually be better if I could show you. How do you become a skilled carpenter? You work as an apprentice for a year or two. You follow a skilled carpenter around. You learn to do what he does, all right? Nobody ever learned anything platonic by following Plato around, all right? You learn something platonic by going back and gazing at your navel and thinking deep thoughts and doing a real Cartesian number where you finally get in touch with the ultimate, which is the thing that the player's been telling you to do. So what Aristotle's doing is saying, look, there's a whole bunch of knowledge and there's a whole bunch of human life that is not adequately dealt with by Plato's theory of knowledge. Look, Plato, it's impressive that you want absolute truth. And insofar as you can get absolute truth, that's a great thing to do. But um, there's lots of stuff about which we just don't have an absolute truth. Like, what's the best way to construct houses? Well, you know, there'd be some differences among carpenters, some agreement, but uh, it's not a completely logical, completely uh, defined activity. It's a practical activity. How many nails do you have to put in a particular four by four? Three, four, something along those lines, all right? Plato would go, three or four? No, no, three or four. <laughs> don't, don't mean this, put in a couple of nails. No, 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 it's not great like that. How many nails, how big, how far? And when he says how far, he wants it to the micron. 
<laughs> All right. So um, the Platonic House is still in the process of being built. Right? It's 25 centuries, they haven't made any progress. All right. In the intervening time, though, a whole bunch of Aristotelian houses and other buildings have been built. And Aristotle thinks that's a good thing. Plato says, you're the kind of guy who believes in tables and chairs. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I mean, of course you build houses. Do you talk to the form of the good? No. <laughs> yeah. Um. Now, now that I think about it, wouldn't that be a little bit contradictory too? Because he does think that you can have the perfect society, like as we saw in the Republic. Doesn't he think it's achievable at least? Plato thinks. Yeah. Well, Plato doesn't think so. Oh, he didn't society. think. So. Well, no. Here's the deal. He says two things about justice. One, um, one man, one job. Don't meddle with anybody else's job. Number two, we're not going to have justice until philosophers and kings. Philosophers and kings are different jobs. Oh. It's intended to be contradictory. Okay. All right. In other words, what he's doing here is giving us an abstraction that doesn't and cannot exist here in this world. It's a standard, like the, the yardstick, to, to find out how corrupt or how improper any existing regime is. You compare it to the ideal. Okay, so Aristotle wants us to accept this theoretical and practical knowledge Theoretical knowledge is Plato's knowledge that gives you perfect precision and perfect certainty. Aristotle's knowledge is that plus all the other stuff. That's practical knowledge. Okay? And practical knowledge can be learned, but it doesn't give you the absolute precision and the absolute certainty that Plato is asking for. All right? Take an example, make it a little easier. All right? I know this might my homage to Aristotle going to examples here. I notice that his book contains examples. What Plato's books contain examples of? Jack. <laughs> right? Right. Here he says, well, let's talk about this example, that example. Plato says, you're talking about examples. Soon we're going to be back to tables and chairs. <laughs> Get all this stuff out of here. <laughs> I mean, Plato's haughtiness is truly astonishing. It's actually kind of funny. <laughs> Get this stuff out of here. Come on, I'll pop up. And of course, no one would have been surprised if Plato f floated off the ground like a soap bubble, but everybody would have been impressed. I had a teacher like that when I was in college, actually. Um, his name was Mircea Eliade. He's a famous historian of religion. And uh, he spoke like nine languages. And his first language was Romanian. And his second was Sanskrit, because he spent 10 years in India. I mean, this guy's really frightening. And he sounded like Dracula when he talked. And, Everybody in the class was just looking at him like, what the hell are you? He knows every religion, all right, since the Stone Age, and he's able to seamlessly move from one to the other. He's dead now, but he was a real piece of work. But Plato's a little bit like that. He doesn't seem to be made of flesh and blood. He certainly doesn't seem to have the interest that human beings ordinarily do. Aristotle does that. He says, look, just because something is practical and takes up space and is material does not mean that it's worth ignoring. There are lots of things, for example, medicine, which are very important to have. And I guess platonic medicine would allow people to live forever or something. No one's worked that out yet. But Aristotle's medicine is designed to help you out in most practical cases. All right. Uh, there's always going to be exceptions to the rule. And Aristotle says, eh, you know, that's the way a practical knowledge is. There are always exceptions. Plato goes, ha, 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 exceptions. What kind of a, of a thinker are you? He says, I'm a practical thinker. 
So in some ways, the Western tradition, at least insofar as it's uh, Greek rationality, is this kind of dialectic back and forth between the people that have made their peace with the material world, those are Anglophone philosophers, and the people that want a revised version of Plato's omniscience. Those are the great German system builders. All right. Back and forth. They keep on giving each other a hard time. That conversation is to a great extent what Western high thought is. Okay, so let's take some. Is that a hand? Question? No. Okay. Um, let's take some examples from Aristotle. Okay, um, the golden mean. All right. Plato says, in order to do the right thing and to perform morally praiseworthy actions. Your actions have to be in accordance with the form of the good. Okay, so uh, what now? <laughs> well, get in touch with the good and it'll tell you. Well, okay. Um, calling the good long distance is kind of the slow way of, hooking, of connecting to the good. Um, what do you want me to do in the interim? Think deep thoughts. Um, this, this kind of starts out slow and then tapers off. I mean, it, it doesn't go anywhere, all right? Um, Plato says, yeah, there is some ultimate good and you can find out about it. And once you do find out about that, you'll be so good you'll be doing good stuff all the time. You'll never do anything wrong. We can put all power in your hands. Aristotle says, hold on, all right? There's theoretical knowledge, but there's also practical knowledge. And practical knowledge works differently. Practical knowledge works within parameters of uncertainty and parameters of precision. Plato wants one and only one answer. That's why he likes math so much. Aristotle is not as wedded to math as Plato is. Aristotle's favorite discipline is biology. Why is that? Biology is a natural science which describes patterns of change. In other words, here we are in the world of becoming. Tadpoles are turning into frogs. Infants are turning into adults. Puppies are turning into dogs. And he says, have you noticed that these happen, that these things happen according to certain patterns? And that these patterns are predictable for the most part. And as a result, it is possible to have a rough and ready practical knowledge of the world around you. Right? So for example, looking at biology, you will notice that if you sow wheat in a field, right, um, the result is never that lizards come out of the ground. Um, that's due to the fact that wheat seed does not turn into lizards. Right. Wheat seed, get ready for this, as a general rule, turns into wheat. It would be most peculiar if the wheat seed were to turn into, say, an elk or a baby carriage. We would say, that's unusual. But Aristotle says, fortunately for us, it never has. When you sow wheat, wheat grows. So what we have there is a predictable pattern of change in nature. Seeds turn into plants. Note that if you, if you uh, plant an acorn and it grows, 
you will invariably become an oak tree, provided it gets the right sunlight and water and stuff. It's never going to become a moose. Plato says, what kind of knowledge is that? It's not going to become a moose. Aristotle says, it's good if you want to plant weed. What else do I want to do? So the point then is that Aristotle thinks we get a practical knowledge that is sufficient for action in the world in the world that Plato says is not a possible object of knowledge, just of opinion. All right. Let's take an example. All right. Aristotle says, and this is an example of practical knowledge, virtue is a mean between two vices. What does that mean? It means that good action is halfway between an excess, which is blameworthy, and a deficiency, which is blameworthy. So courage is the right kind of approach to danger and fear. But you don't want to be too cowardly, because if you're too fearful, that's a vice. On the other hand, if you're a kamikaze, if you're completely out of control, that's a vice too, because you're only supposed to attack when the commanding officer says to attack, not when you get all excited. All right. So real courage is knowing when and how to behave with reference to danger. Not to be excessively afraid, not to be excessively embracing. In other words, there's some middle ground. Now, this golden mean is not a single point on a number line. What it is is actually uh, essentially an area, a domain on uh, a number line, but the domain has fuzzy endpoints, not perfectly defined endpoints. Right. Let me give you an example. Right. And let's say that you're, in a, you're a legislator. You've been called upon to write some laws governing uh, when people can get driver's licenses. Okay, there are laws in the state of Florida that govern that. Okay. Um, one person says, well, I think we need more people on the road, so let's give driver's licenses out to people once they turn three. <laughs> Another says, I'm tired of all those people speeding, engaging in accidents. I want to reserve the road and reserve driver's licenses for people over 65. <laughs> okay. Um, those are the extremes which are not reasonable. Now, we can call Plato's bluff. Come on in. We can call Plato's bluff. Plato, at what age should people get driver's licenses? And Plato will be vexed here because he's supposed to come up with an answer. So think about it. You think about the form of the good and if it worked this hard. Um, 17 years, 4 months, 29 days. And Aristotle says, how did you come up with that? Don't ask. <laughs> it's me in the form of the good. That's the, exactly that number. No earlier, no later, that's it. Well, the problem is nobody believes that. On the other hand, suppose you're on in the legislature, and you're debating what age would be good, and one person says, well, 15 is okay, particularly in... Uh, in rural areas with not a lot of traffic, people need to get around. Another says, well, yeah, but if you come from an urban area like Miami, 
Um, you don't want so many people on the street, you, on, the, on the road. You particularly don't want people that have a limited amount of experience. Let's do 17, even 18. Okay, somewhere between, I don't know, 15 and 18 is that reasonable domain where it would be reasonable to give people driver's licenses. But Plato's going to get kind of impatient with this. What's the answer? 15 or 17? Give me an answer. And I say, well, it's kind of between there. Between there? Yeah. In other words, it's unreasonable to give it to three-year-olds. It's unreasonable to withhold it except until you turn 65. Uh, something at the end of late, toward the end of late adolescence would be a good time to give people driver's licenses. But there is no one unique answer. There's a rough and ready spread of reasonable answers. And these things, even, even the spread of real answers, they don't have final points because it kind of drifts on. I mean, if you're willing to argue in favor of, say, 16-year-olds uh, getting driver's licenses, if someone were to say, what about 15 years and 360 days? You know, okay, that's all right. Why? Because it's not fixed at 16. It'd be a little more, a little less. Three is too little. 65 is too much. But where you draw that and how you draw that, you say, well, it's kind of in the fuzzy middle. Plato has no use for fuzzy anything. All right. Aristotle says, well, look, this is the way the world works. All right. And Aristotle says, we want to get things done. We have to act in the world. All right. Simply gazing at our navel and thinking about deep thoughts will not discharge the obligations we have as human beings, which is actually a good point. All right. So Plato will try and give us one number, but no one knows the what, how he actually derives that. Aristotle is going to give us this fuzzy area. All right. But here's the kicker. Right. Plato's account of truth is that it has to be absolutely true. And what I mean by absolute is independent of space and time. What's true is true for us, it's true for the Eskimos, it's true for the Polynesians. It's true a thousand years ago, it'll be true a thousand years in the, in the future. All right. Aristotle has to adulterate, has to water down that very high standard of truth. Aristotle says, look, the theoretical knowledge will have platonic absolute truth. But for practical knowledge, we need a rough and ready rule of thumb. Right? And these rules are not precise, and the answers they give aren't precise. Virtue is a mean between two vices. Well, okay, maybe so. Um, what that means is we can come up with some fuzzy kind of nebulous consensus, but it's hard to get one and only one univocal answer. A way of thinking about it is this way. For Plato, reason is univocal. It speaks with one voice. And it gives you one answer for every unique question. For Aristotle, reason is polyvocal. Yeah, sometimes you can get perfectly accurate answers like in arithmetic. But other times, you have to live with the fact that your carpenter cuts things within a quarter of an inch or within an eighth of an inch, and that's, that'll do. That's fine. Exactly how much wiggle room can you give a carpenter? There's no one unique answer. It's kind of a fuzzy area. Different carpenters have different degrees of precision. Now notice that the degree of precision that's correct in constructing a house is very different from the degree of uh, 
of precision that's necessary if you want to do a more precise kind of work, like say constructing microprocessors. There you have to be in a clean room because you can't have any dust. And there you really do have to measure to the angstrom because those uh, transistors that make up a microprocessor are so extraordinarily small that um, you need, you know, it's, you can't just get out the carpenter's level and the carpenter's uh, measuring tape and say within a quarter of an inch, that's fine. You're never going to create a microprocessor like that. You need that level of precision. But even Plato, when he looks at people making microprocessors, yeah, it's more precise, but it's not really my kind of precise. Okay. Let's take, where um, would be another good example? Um, Spectrum of reasonable answers. All right. Suppose someone in your uh, in your legislative group says, "I want to give license uh, licenses, driving licenses to kids that are ten. Everybody says no. How do we know that's wrong? Because everybody says no. No one believes that's a good, or very few people think that's a good idea. All right. Plato says, "What kind of reasoning is that?" that can actually let you, somebody say yes, and the other guy say no, and you're both doing the same reasoning. Suppose you even manage to toss out the outliers, and you have a group of rural representatives that want the age to be 15, and a group of urban representatives that want it to be 18. All right, how do we figure out who's right? Well, the answer is, there's no way to do that, because everybody's right. See, here's a problem. Aristotle, because he has reason being polyvocal, it means that there are circumstances in which equally reasonable people can disagree. And of course, that just, Plato just says, look, I told you so. All right. So, for all the questions for which it's very obvious what the answer is, you have the answer. For all those questions for which it's not that obvious what the answer is, all right. Um, Plato says, well, I'm going to have to do some special magical stuff to find out what the right answer is. Whereas Aristotle says, look, the more the merrier. We just get a bunch of opinions and see what people think. All right. If reason, though, is going to be pursued by both sides, by people with different opinions, what that means is that reason is now polyvocal and it will not solve all possible problems. So they call up Plato Central, and they call the form of the good, and they say, right there, okay. Um, it sounds to me like there's not much substance to this. In other words, Plato talks big and makes big claims, but put up or shut up, where are we going to put the football? Now, the Aristotelian has no such problem. He says, look, there, we're going to put it there. And how do you know it's right? Well, we're going to take out the most primitive conceivable measure of distance, which is a chain, for God's sake, right? I mean, this is 
Bronze Age technology. We're going to bring out a chain, stick it to the ground, see how if this end of the football goes beyond it or not. Aristotle says, close enough, first down. <laughs> Plato says, not nearly close enough. We're going to think about this forever. <laughs> <laughs> Which means that there's going to be no platonic football game. Close enough is close enough. Aristotle would go to work. All right. So most of our practical activities would be impossible given Plato's demands on knowledge. Plato says, so what? Who cares if this world goes to hell? It's not real anyway. Aristotle says, oh, will you please stop that? All right? There's nobody who has a mortgage that doesn't believe this world is real. All right? And the fact of the matter is, Aristotle says, if we enlarge the domain of knowledge, we have to admittedly give up a certain degree of precision and certainty, but what we get is control over the world, and that really matters. And of course, if you really want to go after Plato, you say, look, if the things of this world don't matter, why are you so angry about the result of the Peloponnesian War? I mean, it's not real, right? Right, so in other words, there, Plato is in some ways the victim of his own brilliance. I mean, the guy's too damn smart. And so, once he puts together this beautiful structure, I mean, arguably, the greatest intellectual achievement of the ancient world, um, it's so beautiful and so entrancing that later readers will find, wow, this is really beautiful. It may be right, it may not be, I almost don't care. I mean, it's just so great. Aristotle says, it matters whether it's right. <laughs> you stop. <laughs> Plato has a bad influence on people in that respect. Aristotle says, table's real. Yes, indeed. And all the other stuff around you, that's real too. And to live a good life, you have to find a way of negotiating and navigating those things. Aristotle seems to have much the better of it here. Right? Yeah? Oh, who's going to present? Oh, you are good. Aristotle, I, I, the, the median of two extremes, 
seems like it's it's kind of a close enough approximation of every single virtue, and I think that um, the entire ethics really explains this. Um, really, it, it it's not the most precise definition of say courage, but it, it does look good enough. Uh, and I, so I think that uh, it, it's different than than Plato. It was easier to understand than Plato, I think, because it's not we, we don't get stuck at the first the first definition or the first uh, attempt to identify justice or courage or any of the other virtues. Um, so his definition of happiness and living the happy life, I think, is probably the, the thing that I took away from the ethics uh, most importantly because he talks about how you can actually, how someone can actually become happy, or in his case would be how someone can obtain virtue, which is by habit. So someone has to actually also enjoy being virtuous. They can't just um, be virtuous just because they think that that will make them happy. Um, and so another uh, another thing about this, which kind of contradicts the, um, I thought at least it contradicted his uh, practicality was the unity of the virtues. So he says that like you can't have just one or two virtues. That you either have one, or you have all of them, and that that seems pretty platonic in in a sense, and not really Aristotelian. So. That was probably something that confused me. I still don't really get what he's going with with the unity of virtues. Um, but so yeah, I, I think that uh, Aristotle was much more enjoyable to read in the Republic because I didn't have to like. There, it didn't seem like there were any hidden meanings. Like I didn't have to read it three times or read it upside down or read it backwards to figure out what was going on with with. It was Plato's easier. Republic. Yeah, I, I think that Aristotle. It was. It was a much more enjoyable read because of his practicality and his ability to analyze things. Well, I'm impressed with that. Um, I have never heard anyone say that they enjoyed Aristotle more than Plato, but um, there are people that do. And um, it, is there more? No. Okay. Here's the deal. Have a seat. You're in good shape. Here's the deal. All people are born either Aristotelians or Platonists. It's in your DNA. Well, no, you'll find it. When first you get to university, that's probably your first exposure to both Plato and Aristotle, um, almost everybody finds one congenial and the other off-putting and very hard to deal with. Right? You found the wrong one, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> right? The really great stuff is Plato. Um, here's why. All right, this is why I think that. It's not practical, but it's really beautiful. I mean, he's the greatest poet of the Greek tradition. I think he's a greater poet than Homer or any of the tragedians. But he's also a great philosopher. Right. I don't think anyone's ever accused Aristotle of being beautiful. Instead, what it seems to me, when I, mean, when I look at that you know, book after book after book where he grinds his way through all of reality, um, what it ultimately looks to me like is something roughly like the parts list of the universe. Right? Every little part has its own tag on it explaining where this goes and what it does. And then there's tags on the tags, which bring all those together. And um, Aristotle says, look, I have a completely encyclopedic mind. Plato is not so encyclopedic as he is transcendental. Right? And that's not everybody's taste, I have to admit. And with good reason. I mean, you have good reason to become impatient with Plato. Say, all right, so where's the beef here? What are you going to give me here? What am I going to find out? 
that isn't going to go woo, you know, and lift us off the ground. And uh, I like that because I kind of enjoy that soap bubble feeling. And uh, I only get it from Plato. He's the great poet philosopher. But uh, Aristotle is useful and attractive. Now, when I was your age, I have to admit, I was required to read Aristotle and Locke. Yeah, like when, like when I started reading um, works by philosophers, like I, I, I went into it wanting something that I could like, just apply like relatively immediately or something that I could understand how to apply. But that concept is like so past Plato because it's not, like, yeah. it's not relevant. Reality is beneath Plato. We go. Okay, I think that raising all of your souls up wherever it is you're going, that that's great. Unfortunately, there's still the remainder of your life to live, and that is where, where Aristotle comes out strong. All right. Um, what Aristotle does, yeah. Is beauty more important than utility to you? Depends on what I'm trying to do. I mean, that's kind of an Aristotelian answer. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I gotta admit, I'm partial to beauty, whereas if I wanted to do things, I would have been an engineer. Right? As it is, I'm a professor, so I like to read these books and then read them again over the course of 50 years. That strikes me as being a very enjoyable thing to do. That's a contemplative virtue that Aristotle liked. Remember that Aristotle's a thinker, and sooner or later he's gonna go tell you that thinking is better than doing stuff, but doing stuff is really important. So you're right, utility has much to be said for it. Um, I'm not a practical man, right? And so I like the contemplative life, and uh, I like contemplating Plato because it's it does everything in a way that no other writer does. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think to add to that too, like just sitting and thinking, it's still doing something. You're still like ideas form actions, right? So it's like. Well, I do. I mean, they can, whether they do or not, I don't know. In other words, I haven't you know won any wars or run any elections or done anything like that. Um, so maybe thought generates action, but it has it for me. Well, you don't know what your thoughts have necessarily, you know, caused you within other people. True enough, true them. enough. I've ruined many lives. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's the case, yes. Uh, she's on Bolores, so these are her questions. But, oh, good. Um, this is a little off topic, but you said that Plato thinks that the things of this world aren't real. How does he differ from Gorgias' philosophy? Oh, because Gorgias doesn't think that anything is real. So Plato says, look, the form of the good is real. Gorgias doesn't believe there's any of that jazz. So Gorgias says, stuff above the divided line, that's not real. Stuff below the divided line, that's not real either. <laughs> right? He's a joker. He's a provocateur. Yeah. So like last week when we read The Republic, like I kind of like got in the mindset of like thinking about like all this this beauty and all this crazy stuff. And then I was like, okay, I need to get back to Earth because it's kind of crazy. It's kind of scary. So does Aristotle think that like does he transcend and get to that level and then say, okay, it's also good to get back to Earth and think about practical things, but then go back and forth between the two? Well, um, Aristotle thinks that contemplation is better than action, but that action can be noble and worthy. Okay. All right. So, um, given the choice, look, as far as I know, with the possible exception of Nietzsche, I don't know of any philosopher who thinks of the active life is better than the contemplative life because they're philosophers. All right? Ask a practical politician about contemplation. And say, look, I don't have time to contemplate. I have stuff to do. Right? 
So I sympathize with your point about uh, Plato becoming kind of scary. You can get a kind of vertigo here when you look down and say, where the hell am I? What is this? What am I talking about? All right. Um, yeah. Like I read Gorgias as like a, someone's reaction, initial reaction to Plato. Where it's like, so you what think nothing's real, but then like Plato's like, well, no, 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 the good is real. But then that's it. Um, Gorgias is inverting the logos. The logos tells you what is real, what can be known, and what can be talked about. Gorgias says nothing is nothing exists, nothing can be known, nothing can be talked about. It inverts that. But of course in the process it's saying stuff and implicitly claiming to know stuff. And the stuff he's implicitly claiming to know implicitly exists. Yeah. So how come Plato would be concerned with like whether man is treating someone justly or unjustly? If because justice reflects the proper ordering of the soul, without which life is not worth living. Because <clears throat> when you act justly, it's because you have the gold in command, your silver is reinforcing it, and your appetites are moderated. So um, it's just kind of reminding me of like the Some of them thought that. Others went to the desert and were ascetics like St. Anthony. Used to fast and pray and, you know, be Gnostic alone and connect to the Gnosis. I don't know what they were doing. But um, the because the Gnostics um, have no conceptual structure, they can go in any direction. Once you're freed of the obligations in this world, well, maybe that wants you, maybe means you want to give up your family and your job and go to the desert. Another may be it's party time. And each of them claims that they have the gnosis, so they're not willing to argue with anybody that disagrees with them. Um, let's think of Aristotle's characteristic contribution to the world, to thought. Here's what Aristotle is great at. It's called analysis. You ever analyzed anything? Okay. What'd you do when you analyze something? Yeah, go ahead. means that you're going to take a whole, a complex whole, and break it down into its component parts. Now, not just any part are its natural component parts. For example, if you wanted to think about uh, a car, right, you want to analyze a car, one way of analyzing it would be to take one of those big metal cutting saws and cut through the car and say, I'm going to analyze it in terms of the front half and the back half. Well, the problem with that is Aristotle would say that's not a proper analysis because these are not natural parts. All right? The natural parts are of anything are defined by having a separate telos, a separate function. Think about it this way. Tenth grade biology. All right? We're going to dissect the frog again. 
So we put the frog on the table, we open up the skin, we look inside, we see frog guts. But not just undifferentiated frog guts, we see the insides of a frog, and each of them seems to have its own proper function. The heart moves blood around, and the gut digests food, and uh, the nervous system connects the muscles and the brain. And the, all the different parts of the frog serve a different function. So we identify these parts called organs, all right, and we identify them, we separate them out. Now, we are able to separate the organs of a frog out because it is by nature organized. That's where organization comes from. It means finding the organs, the subcomponents that have particular functions. Okay, now, once you have the heart, then you say, what are the different parts of the heart? And you say it has a, a right ventricle and a left ventricle and a, you know, different uh, arteries and veins coming and going from it. So you say, I'm going to cut the heart into its various parts, the different chambers, the different ventricles, the different uh, veins and, uh, and other blood vessels that go in arteries, and uh, I'm going to attribute a function to each of them. One brings the blood into the heart, the other sends the blood out of the heart. One is the first uh, chamber to get the blood that's been brought into the heart, and the next is where it gets oxygenated, or whatever it is that it does. And then, if we need to, we can go to the first ventricle of the heart. We say, what are the parts of the first ventricle? So there's a valve here, and there's uh, something else here, and something... We break that into its component parts. We keep on breaking these things down further and further and further until we get to the point where there's no separate function. And once we've gotten to the point where there's no separate function, the process of analysis comes to an end. We've gotten to the natural minimal units of a frog. All right? A frog is organized. It has organs. Putting together put them together and have them function properly is necessary for having a frog that's alive. Okay, so what Aristotle wants to do is what you were taught in 10th grade biology. Find the organs and then figure out what they're supposed to do. And health will be the condition of having all the parts doing what they're supposed to do. Sickness will be having one or more parts that doesn't function properly. So far, so good. That makes sense. Now, what's great about this idea of analysis is that it is absolutely universal. You can do this with anything. All right? It's easy to start with frogs and 10th grade biology, but it also works with, say, medical school. First year of medical school, they give you gross anatomy. They put a cadaver down, you take it apart. You find inside the cadaver organs, because the cadaver is organized. Each one of these organs, the liver, the lungs, the heart, whatever, has its own characteristic function. And then if you take the heart apart, you're going to find four uh, valves and all the other stuff that goes in and comes out of it. I don't know what they are. It doesn't matter for my purposes. The idea is, though, what you're doing when you do gross anatomy in medical school is the same thing you're doing in frog anatomy in 10th grade. Right? What you're doing is the Aristotelian process of analysis. Okay. So it works for frogs and it works for human bodies. It works for cars. 
let's analyze the car. I'm going to put a car here. I'm going to pop the hood. I'm going to say, in front, we have these headlights. Their function is to illuminate the road. Other parts here, there's the fan that cools the engine down. There's the distance. That's where the actual energy gets produced. And each one of the parts of your car has a necessary function. They don't put anything in there just for show, right? That's an engineering faux Everything has to be there for a reason. Okay. We look at the distributor cap, and there are wires going into the distributor cap. We take it off. We say, aha, the distributor, which has, since it's a six-cylinder car, we have six spark plugs. Okay. So we're going to break it down into its component spark plugs. Then we take the spark plug. We say, aha, what are the parts of a spark plug? Well, there's a point where the spark actually gets produced, and there's the point where it screws in, and it has different parts to that as well. You keep doing that until you get to the point where, say you have a, a nut and a bolt. You take it apart, and this is the nut, this is the bolt. Okay, uh, the nut can't be broken down any further because, you know, if you chop it in half, it doesn't have any function at all. Same sort of thing with the bolt. So now we go back in the opposite direction, and the opposite of analysis is synthesis. What that means is putting all these parts together in the right order so they perform their proper function. And if you do that, then you have a car that runs. Yeah. So when you get, <coughs> me, when you get to immaterial ideas or when you're analyzing something that's not all part of one physical thing, um, like in the politics when Aristotle started talking about this, how does he determine what the function of each thing is and where the functions differentiate. Okay. Because he was talking about, at the very beginning of the politics, talking about how the family, or the city is prior to the family, because the family is a part of a whole. But the family is also a whole in itself with component parts. So I'm just curious where he breaks Okay. It. This will work for constitutions, all right? Let's take the American Constitution as an example, make it a little easier, all right? There will be, for example, um, a statement as to who is a citizen. Right. Also, there'll be statements about the various positions that will be held in the government. There'll be the Supreme Court and Congress and uh, the President. All right. And then we'll have all with the various cabinets and stuff and the Department of Justice, all the rest of that jazz that's provided for. And then we'll have a series of, uh, of, of uh, rules determining things like taxation property rights, rights that people are given, like the right to freedom of speech or freedom of religion. Um, all of those are going to serve separate functions. So what the different parts of a constitution do are like what the different parts of a car do. There's always got to be something that's going to illuminate the roads. So there's always got to be something, for example, like some ultimate decision maker. It can be the one, the few, or the many, but somebody ultimately has to have the ultimate say. So that will be the sovereign. So if you look from constitution to constitution, it's got to be a sovereign in every one. Different size, different description, different selection, but they, have, they perform the same function. All right? Same sort of thing with law. Who makes it, who can change it, who applies it, and who enforces it. All those things are going to be in there. Um, different kinds of regime are going to have different kinds of sovereign and also different kinds of law. So um, the activity of analysis works perfectly well for um, constitutions. 
right? Um, our constitution is different than the constitution of Mexico, but there's a part of, the, of each constitution that says who counts as a citizen and who doesn't? Who can hold office and who can't? What are the offices and what are they supposed to do? What are they supposed to do? What is their function? Okay, now, strangely enough, Aristotle, I mean, he, he really gets a lot of mileage out of this idea. It's one of the world's great ideas, all right, analysis. He actually does it in a book called The Poetics. He analyzes tragedies, all of them. It turns out, tragedies all have the same component parts performing the same functions. He says, what you have to have in a tragedy, first of all, you need some action. And the action, and you never find a tragedy with no action. Everybody just sits there, right? There's got to be something happening. And not only is there action in a tragedy, but the, tragedy, the tragic action is going to have a middle, a beginning, and an end. In case you're wondering, the beginning comes first. Notice that no tragedy starts at the middle. It would be very strange to Oedipus going all excited and gouging out his eyes, and we don't know why. Right? So they have to actually give them in those sequence. Right? So it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has a plot. It has characters, and not just any characters, it has certain kinds of characters. They need to be superior, the kind of characters you get in epic tragedy, in epic, in epic poetry, not the kind of people you get in comedy. All right? So Aristotle looks at the parts of tragedies, breaks them into their components, tells us what they're supposed to do, and then puts them back together, decides which tragedy is the best and which tragedy is the worst. He says, for example, he doesn't like Euripides' Medea. Here's why. It has a part that doesn't do anything. That's when King Aegeus comes and says, Medea, you want to come and live in Athens? And he says, sure, you know, I'll give you a child and it'll all be great. Okay, um, Aristotle says, well, I understand that you want to get her to Athens somehow, and you got an extremely lame conclusion, which is this dragon chariot. But Aristotle says, do we really need King Aegeus and this little um, digression in there? No, that should have been left out. The main action is crazy Medea killing her children. All right, um, how she gets away. Look, once you brought in the dragon chariot, why can't you have it fly to Athens anyway? You don't need this. So that would be like looking at a car and finding a part that doesn't serve any function. Or doing what 17th century anatomists did with the human body, looking at the body and then coming up with the appendix and not being able to give any function for it. Right, now that's of course the beginning of the end. That's the end of, of teleological biology. Because once we start to find things that don't seem to have a function, this functional definition tends to break down. You'll find, for example, that in your, if you have your DNA sequenced, 90% um, of your DNA doesn't code for any kind of protein at all. It's junk left over from the process of, of uh, evolving up from bacteria. All right? So there's a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't perform any function at all, all right? But Aristotle didn't believe that. He said, look, nature operates with purpose. Everything in nature has a purpose. Your job is to figure out what it is. Okay. So we have now a universal method of inquiry, analysis. And Aristotle then flogs this method of inquiry and imposes it on the entire universe. 
And that's pretty impressive, actually, to find a kind of skeleton key with which to, to break open any problem. That's actually really impressive. All right? And it works tolerably well. It's good for a little over two millennia, all right, until the rise of modern natural science 3.0, right, Renaissance and Enlightenment science, when this old teleological view broke down. All right, they were desperate to find something for the hypothalamus to do. So they had to do, you know, Descartes' mind-body thing. Why? Well, because we have to have it do something, and we haven't discovered the endocrine system yet, so we don't know what this thing does. So we have one thing that has to get done. We got one thing to possibly do it. Let's go to work. All right. um, it's a desperation. All right. um, once we get past Darwin, you know, 1859, the uh, or 1857, the publication of the uh, Origin of Species. Once that happens, um, then the teleology really begins to break down. All right. And then, I mean. You still get taught it in 10th grade, but this is an approximation, all right? Um, there may well be, as a matter of fact, there almost certainly are elements in a frog, particularly in the DNA, that don't code for anything, all right? So, um, Aristotle lays the foundation for our knowledge of natural science, right? Because Plato has no interest in nature. Just get this out of my way so I can think of thoughts, right? He's also, the, uh, one of the greatest figures in social science. All right, you can do both. Why? Because you can analyze away at anything you want. You can even analyze human action to find out which ones are the best. And you can also find out which action is, which is properly the function of which sort of people. Some virtues are universal. Some are unique to the particular position you have. One of the things that is interesting about Aristotle is that unlike Plato, he's interested in happiness. And in Greek, eudaimonia means having a good demon inside you. Uh, that's what Socrates' daimon is, right? He has a daimon inside him, and Socrates himself is the daimon in Athens. And they killed the eudaimonia. Right. So, uh, what, what Aristotle is going to do is give us a rough and ready account of all the virtues by plugging them into this rule of thumb, the golden mean. Right? Now, we develop virtues by having the right kind of character, and character is the product of habit. And that actually is true. You're too young to have your own children, but I have mine. And Aristotle has a pretty good account of how we teach children um, to be civilized. For example, when you're teaching a two-year-old to say please and thank you, which they don't do on their own, take it from me. <laughs> All right, so they have to be taught to say please and thank you. How do we do that? We hold the lollipop here and we say, what's the magic word? And if they can't think it up, we say it's please. And then they say please and they get the lollipop. We do this a hundred times. Then we hold the lollipop and say, what's the magic word? And if they say please, you say okay, but think of it yourself next time. Eventually, you get to the point where you hold up the lollipop, they say please, they say no, you can't have a lollipop. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually how everybody learns. They say please and thank you. Right? So 
what's the magic word? And eventually the magic word just doesn't get the job done and doesn't get you the life, but you still are in the habit of saying please and thank you. It's tough to be a kid. <laughs> but the point is, how do you teach a child to say please and thank you, to be polite? You do it by getting them in the habit of doing that and giving them a reward. It's not fundamentally different from training a dog. It's actually really the same activity. All right, so habit is hugely important, something Plato completely ignores. All right, and habit gets you in the position of regularly doing the right thing. And what the mean between two vices will be will change with circumstance. So what that means is this. Um, under military danger, the, the moderate, the mean response might be a ferocious attack, which under other circumstances would be thought of as excessively violent. All right? So what counts as a mean is mobile depending upon the circumstances. And this is also, I think, a big contribution to Aristotle. He says that there's no one formula that will solve all your moral problems. Instead, what you need is good judgment or prudence. You know, the Greek word is phrenesis. What it means is acting as a reasonable person would act under your circumstances. So, we'll go back to the case of giving out driver's licenses. Within 15 to 18, I think Phrenesis tells us that it's someplace in there. I don't know exactly where, because I don't think it's one unique answer. But Phrenesis will tell us, look, three is too young, 65 is too old. And it's not the product of a formula, it requires good judgment. Now, there is such a thing as good judgment and bad judgment. I bring to your attention, 15-year-old boys with cars. You all know perfectly well that that is bad judgment. They're gonna, the parents are not going to be watching. They're going to do stupid stuff with cars. Do any of you doubt that? If you doubt that, you have a terrible judgment. <laughs> What's very clear is that teenage boys are going to do stupid stuff with cars, and that's why it costs so much to insure them. Right. Why? Because at 15, you lack phrenesis. The hope is at 50, you have it. And if you look at the actual uh, statistics on car wrecks, you will find that, in fact, um, young men with more testosterone than brains do stupid stuff with cars. They lack phrenesis. So phrenesis is a real thing. And I think it's actually going to be important even when we get to the end of term four of this. Here's why. What we're going to learn is that there are a number of ways to account for uh, good and, 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 and evil action, right and wrong, all right? Um, Aristotle's golden mean is one of the great ones, but by itself it's not sufficient. There are problems with it. We're also going to have other accounts of good moral action. Kant's categorical imperative. That's an attempt to say, no, Plato was right in the first place. I know what the algorithm is that governs all moral action, and Plato was fundamentally right. Don't give me any of this crap about phrenesis. Kant is oppression. He finds the one and only one unique command that everyone must obey. 
to be more. So don't give me any of that Aristotelian fuzziness. Immanuel Kant is uh, in the tradition of Plato in the sense that he wants unique, perfect, exact right answers. That is either wrong or it is right, and Kant can tell you which one it is. It's an amazing achievement, um, but by itself that also has problems. Later on, we'll also get utilitarians. We're going to say the greatest good for the greatest number. We are trying to optimize the distribution of pleasure. Well, um, that may be part of moral judgment, but it's not the whole of it, and there are many difficulties with that too. Later on, because we're actually going to be able to get to the point now where I'm going to be teaching you Rawls' theory of justice. That'll be in the, se in the fourth term. And Rawls has a different theory of justice. He says just action requires that we maximize the advantage of the people that have the least advantage in society so that whatever policies we do are always going to help everybody, including the people who are at the very bottom of society. It's, a, it's, a, it's an inversion of utilitarianism. It's kind of an interesting idea, actually. Well, what it is is the world's longest, most tedious meditation on a single line of scripture. Whatsoever you do to the least of my brethren, that you do unto me. Uh, Rawls, before he went to uh, the Second World War, I was shocked at what he saw in the Pacific Theater. He intended to become a minister. Instead, he decided to become a philosopher, and he came up with a theory of justice because he was so horrified at Hiroshima. He's an interesting guy. So, look, we have at least those four accounts, many more actually, but those four kind of are outstanding in different ways. Now, here's the deal it's all good if you of thinking about an action, whether it's good or not, and you plug them into, the, into these different ways of thinking about it, and they all say, yeah, that's a good thing to do. You can be pretty sure under those circumstances that, yeah, that's a good thing to do. The real problems come when sometimes different accounts of justice tell us different actions are proper, and you can't make utilitarianism and categorical imperative mesh. I mean, they're just in conflict. So what that means is this. Um, in circumstances where you are examining all these moral theories, just trying to find out if you're doing the right thing, um, what you need is not more moral theories. What you need is sufficient phrenesis, sufficient good judgment to know when you're supposed to invoke what rule. Now think about this. This is actually quite important. Um, the logic of ethics is not like the logic of mathematics. Well, um, not necessarily, but okay, uh, Spinoza's with Plato was a threatening you with, right? If you ever wonder what that is? Um, he's a guy who constructed uh, his book, The Ethics. It's one of the most famous in the world. It's constructed in exactly the same form as Euclid's Elements. So he starts with definitions, works on theorems and corollaries, and drives all the uh, all the uh, the affections, all the psych all the uh, elements of the human psyche. He drives it mathematically. So that's the way it is. Okay, this, you shouldn't have broken the spinos. Where was I off? It's not like mathematics. Oh, yeah, okay, here. Let me give you two moral rules that you've or that you already know of, and they're not, you know, they're not really unusual. First is look before you leave. That's good advice. The second is he who hesitates is lost. The problem, now these are contradictory 
imperatives. The problem is not that one of these is true and one of these is false, which is what Plato would want to do. Instead, the fact of the matter is that both of them are true, despite the fact that they're contradictory. The problem is not to find out which one is true or which one is false. The problem is to find out, under the particular circumstances you're considering, which is the right one to apply. So I think that Aristotle's idea of phrenesis is a very important, genuine contribution. Not everything that can be reduced to a formula. Again, but that's not good. Right. So Aristotle's idea of phrenesis is hugely important. Next interesting problem. Philosophical psychology. Everyone seems to think that the people surrounding them possess minds. You're all wondering, is that true? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, when you ask a question in class, I usually assume it refers back to some state of mind that you have. Now, admittedly, I have never experienced your experiences, so I, I really don't know what it's like to have your mind. But I assume it's kind of like mine. I mean, what else would I assume? All right. Imagine that the people around you don't have minds, that in fact, this is a zombie world and you are the only one with a mind. How would you be able to tell? That's weird. <laughs> That's really unfortunate. Suppose half of the junior class here at Ave were taken away and replaced by robots that look just like them and act just like them. How would you know? Well, yeah. Um, we all believe that other people have minds. It's an assumption that I don't see how we can avoid because most of us experience the world as if we had minds. But the problem of other minds is actually very difficult because there's no scientific way to find out about it. Right. Yet, not only do we believe other people have other have their other minds and other people possess them, um, we may be tempted to say that dogs have them or cats have them too. I don't know how far you want to go with mind, but um, no matter how far you want to go with mind, the question is, how can you know other minds? In other words, how do you know the the, the mind of your best friend or your boyfriend or your girlfriend? You assume they have a mind. Let's see what's kind of wavering. <laughs> I'm not sure where that goes. All right, but uh, other minds. Um, do you know any other minds? If so, how? What they tell you. That's they tell you. Okay. Well, suppose my hypothetical robot were to tell you that they have a mind. You wouldn't know if they're telling the truth or not. Okay. So how do you know? that you're not talking to robots, or actually robots not made of, made of aluminum and microprocessors, made of flesh and blood. You, don't, you, you don't have to pull. cut it open. You have to cut it open, okay. And what does the mind look like once you cut it open? You see the brain. You want, see, you want to turn the brain into the mind. Uh, I don't know about that. We'll see if we can make that work. Um, yeah? What about what we did earlier with the potato swarms when, you know, you asked, you asked Think about, you ask questions, you ask it to think about things, and if it matches the, 
you know, yep. the description of things in your head then, you know, the, the theory of forms is going to be the same form. Right. I can talk about forms, and then you can say, yes, I'm experiencing that. And what I will experience is your verbal behavior. I won't experience any of your experiences. Um, but it would still be some proof that you're having, they're having an experience. No, I could get my, I could get my hypothetical um, robot to say, wow, I really love Plato's theory of forms. So you can never fully know what's in someone else's mind. You're, in, you're, you're fishing in very troubled waters here, yes. Yeah. That may be so, I don't know. In other words, the question of other minds is a very, very difficult problem. But whatever it is, it is not a possible object of natural science. I mean, the, way you, the only way you can find out about other people's minds is to have other people's experiences. I don't know how to do that. Not only don't I know how to do that, nobody else does either. And yet we all go through life assuming that everybody else is kind of doing what we are doing. Yeah. Does he think that, like then sometimes you don't even know what's in your own mind because... Freud thinks that. <laughs> <laughs> but like, couldn't that also apply too? Because I feel like sometimes you don't know exactly what you're thinking. Like you could say something like, oh, did I mean to do that? Or like, you know how you can contemplate that. I've graded final exams and I can believe that. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's not hard to believe. There are times when you look at it and say, I mean, look at a history exam when they make up something that is completely imaginary. There's, there's no such thing. I say, I'm going to give that extra credit. <laughs> I mean, that's really impressive. <laughs> I mean, there is no such thing in the world, but I mean, this is a great story. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say about that? Uh, the problem of other minds is quite difficult. Now, but here's where, here's where the rubber meets the road. Practical stuff. Um, we all are working on the assumption that the people around us possess minds, and that this mind is in some way analogous to our own mind. Fair enough. Okay. We do this on the basis of their behavior, because that's all we can observe. What that means is that philosophical psychology is a tempting but also very difficult enterprise. In other words, look, every, every philosophy of knowledge is inevitably going to connect to a philosophy of mind. In other words, if you're going to have knowledge, you have to have a knower, and that knower will have a mind. Okay. Now, the question is, how do you know what other people's minds do, since you only have experience of your own mind? We're stuck in that Cartesian uh, bubble, right? We can know about ourselves, but who knows what's going on in anybody else's mind? And yet, we think we believe, we believe and we think that we do really sometimes know what's going on in other people's minds. For example, when they talk to us, we often say that, or we often assume that they're trying to, com to communicate something, to connect some idea that they have with my thinking. Right. Okay, how do you know if you're right or wrong? This is very tricky. In other words, if you say that uh, 
someone engages in a kind of action because they couldn't have engaged in any other kind of action. Or alternatively, we say they could have engaged in some other kind of action and we hold them blameworthy. Okay, um, how do you know whether they could or could not have engaged in that different kinds of action? You can't. I mean, you're getting loans to see that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's going to close in on you. Yeah. I understand that. Yeah, the world does get really lonesome if you can't have other minds. But if you can have other minds, how do you have them? Yeah. doesn't give you any justification for making claims about what's going to happen tomorrow. The fact is that the sun has risen for many, many days in a row. But if you ask me, is the sun going to rise tomorrow? And the answer is, I don't know. I mean, I, if you want to know what I would bet on, I would bet that it's going to rise. But if you want to know what I'm sure about, I can't be sure about the future. I haven't experienced it yet. So if I have an experience of something and I have thoughts about it, like love, for mm -hmm. example, and I ask you, and I haven't expressed this ever to anyone, and I say, what are your thoughts about love? And you give me your thoughts, and they match with my experience. Then either you have a mind, or you're a robot, and whatever programmed you had a mind. Something had the same experience and the same thoughts that I'm having. How do you know? I mean, how does it, well, hold it. Suppose someone were to have the same thoughts that you were having. How would you be able to tell? The same way that when you were describing the tiny purple tin horse, it was not a horse because your experience of horse and or your idea of horse and my idea of horse is the same. And it's the same with well, at least similar with experiences. That you recognize something similar. Okay. Um, well what you see is my verbal behavior. So how do you know what my mind is doing? So my inclination with that is just to say that it had to, like, those thoughts had to develop somehow. Someone, like, I, I think you can reason to the fact that they didn't just pop into existence. I think that's reasonable. The same way you can reason that this table didn't just pop into existence. Well, actually, you've got to find out that some uh, kind of particles. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course, somebody. I see How about this? Oh, All right, here's a question. Um, Aristotle believes. And Christians also believe this, that there's such a thing as a creation. What that means is weakness of the will. So sometimes you know the right thing to do, but you don't want to do the right thing. So because of weakness of the will, you choose what's wrong, even though you know it's not right. On the other hand, Plato doesn't believe that there is such a thing as a creation. Here's what Plato says. Plato argues, and Socrates is the one who first made this argument, that to know the good is to do it. In other words, if you know that something is good, because it is good, is it, it is intrinsically attractive, and you intrinsically want to possess it. Okay? So, to know the good is to do it. But, to be ignorant of the good, to have a mistaken idea of what's good, means that you're going to be pursuing that mistaken thing, 
rather than what's truly good. And what that means is, and this is what we're thinking about, for Plato, all evil is ignorance. Let me give you an example to get all Aristotelian. You find a wallet on, the, on campus that has money and credit cards in it. Um, you say, well, I could use a few dollars. And so what you're inclined to do is take the money out, stick it in your wallet, and throw the wallet away. All right. On the other hand, um, you may say, this is my friend's wallet, I'm going to give this to my friend. All right? um, or you can say, this is a person I don't know, I could find this person and give them the wallet, but I'm not going to do that. Aristotle says that if you decide to keep the money and not give the wallet back, even though you know it's the wrong thing to do, the reason why you're doing that is because your will is weak. You have weakness of the will, which, while you know what's good, means you actively choose what's wrong. Go back to the theological definition of, of mortal sin. You need full consent of the will. So you gotta, in other words, you can't do a mortal sin by mistake. All right? You have to say, this is wrong, and I'm gonna do this because I wanna do this wrong thing. Why? Well, because a creation is making my will weak, which means that I choose actively what's wrong. Plato says that's literally psychologically impossible. Plato says, that whatever you think is good, you're always going to follow that. You're always going to try and possess that. And if you decide to steal or murder or engage in some other evil activity, it's because you think that evil activity is good. What that amounts to is denying that, that mortal sin is possible. All right. Yeah. sin is possible, you have to have full consent of the will, which means you're choosing to do what you know is wrong and not and choosing not to do what you know is right. You know that it's wrong, but you think that you can still get something good out of doing the wrong. Well, so I mean, you'll you get some pleasure out of it, perhaps, but that pleasure is not the morally good thing to do. Well, yeah, but I think you're Plato means is that you can't, it's, it's psychologically impossible in Plato's theory of mind for someone to choose what they know is wrong. All right? And with the Krasia and Aristotle's idea and the Christian idea, you can know what's wrong, but you can actively say, I'm going to choose what I know is wrong. Yes, I'm going to choose what I know is wrong because it gets me some pleasure or some benefit, but that's not the same thing as thinking that it's right. Um, I may uh, perjure myself on the stand when I give testimony, and I may do it because I want to inherit some money or something. And although I think that inheriting that money is good, I know perfectly well that perjuring myself on the stand is wrong. Right? That's the difference between Plato and Aristotle. Plato says it's just not possible to do that. 
right? What that means is, is that we cannot choose wrong. We can only be mistaken about what's truly good, and that's why we make mistakes, and that's why we do what was wrong. What Plato's view does is make you actually very mild and compassionate towards wrongdoers. The poor individual, look at this person, doesn't know any better, thinks stealing a bicycle or stealing a car is a good thing, all right? When we all know that stealing a bicycle, stealing a car is not a good thing. Aristotle would say, look, be realistic. He knows perfectly well that steal that car is wrong, but he wants to go out and enjoy it. And so his greater desire for that pleasure overcomes his will towards doing what's right. Yeah. So how does that contribute to the discussion about knowing other people's minds? Because it seems okay. to me to complicate it. Well, it does. Okay. Uh, <laughs> here's the question. Is Aristotle or Plato right? Does weakness of the will exist or not? And this is the Kicker, how do you know? I feel like Aristotle is is more right because I feel like I know sometimes things are wrong for me, but I'm like, oh, this would be more pleasurable, and then I do it anyway. Mm -hmm. So I feel like Um, it makes sense. That would be connected to the fact we're Christians. Right. right? (laughs) And uh, that's why um, St. Thomas was so open to bringing Aristotle in. It's much here that can merge with Christian thought. The problem is um, that Plato simply denies it. And here's the question, what would count as evidence that would allow us to, be, to choose between uh, philosophy of, of mind one, philosophy of mind two, and down to philosophy of mind 100? In other words, I can think of many, many theories of mind. Think of Freud, right? All your, um, your passions and your sexual desire is sublimated, and so you do stuff for reasons you don't, even you don't understand. Okay, well maybe. The question is, how can you find out Who's right? See, we all have theories of mind. We all have attribute mental states to other people. And we're all using some, perhaps less, perhaps more, well-defined account of what we think of as the philosophy of mind. But um, the question is, how do you know which one to choose? Is equation real or not? And before you give me an answer, I don't care what the answer is. What I care about is what is going to count as evidence for your proposition. Give me yes or no. Yeah? I just have a question about equation. Um, Mm -hmm. So it seems to me we were talking about equation, like the kind of whole weakness of will and doing wrong. And I feel like it kind of connects to hubris in a way. would you, how would you like connect those two? And like, cause I feel like you, they kind of go hand in hand almost. Hubris is a lack of, of a sense of proportion. It's going too far, right? Now, you may go too far because you think that that excess is in fact good. That would play this account. Or you may do it because of your vanity and your desire for glory which <coughs> impels you to do things that you know aren't good. Okay. So here's the, the, I mean the, the question I'm trying to drive at here with philosophy. Go ahead. So to answer your question as to what we count as evidence, but first we have to acknowledge that Aristotle says that we only have a certain amount of certainty and precision in this field. Okay. Uh, and the best that we're going to get is a reference practical knowledge based on our own experience and what other, be- other beings, if we assume, have minds tell us about their experiences. Okay. 
That's a good way of approaching it. Here's the problem that I have. Um, we're going to start on the basis of our experience. Have in the course of your life, you haven't changed your understanding of how minds work? Okay. And uh, how did that work? In other words, how did you come to the conclusion that one theory of mind is wrong and the next one is correct? In other words, I'm sure you had some reason for it. I'm just wondering what the reason was. Well, yeah, okay, you have your experience. Suppose you say that you have experienced a creature, and Plato says he hasn't. Is he doing mind wrong? He's not thinking about mind with the same experience that I'm thinking about. So I guess the question would be, if he had had the same experience as I had, and had different thoughts about what the mind is, I definitely not have an answer to that. But I think the, the experiences we have shape the way we think, especially the way we think about the way we think. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I sense the ghost of Plato. Go ahead. <laughs> um, so I, basically, I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> In other words, um, if you're going to say that a creation is real, and someone says, like Plato says, it's not real, um, what counts as a way of deciding who's right? In other words, I know how to solve deductive problems. You go back to the definitions and you work out the implications of the terms. I know how to decide, how to decide inductive problems. You go and have a look at the thing and you see what it does. Here, it doesn't seem to be inductive or deductive. So what are we supposed to do with this stuff? You see how awful this is, all right? In other words, I don't doubt that I have a mind and I, I'm convinced that you have minds. But if you were to ask me, what are the contents of your minds? Are they like the contents of my mind? Is your creature like my creature? Is it like Plato's absence of a creature? I don't know what I'm supposed to say about that. Yeah. You say Plato has an absence of a creature. Um, so I guess my question is in two parts. The first is that does this conception that you're you're attributing to Plato necessarily contradict with the, with the phenomenon of I know I shouldn't, a sort of a perception of a creature? And second, how do you explain, um, and perhaps it's simply my misunderstanding of how he depicts Alcibiades in Symposium, in, in which case, what's going on there? Um, Alcibiades seems to be bewitched by Socrates, but he also finds very attractive other things. And he is never willing to let Socrates completely convince him that the Socratic life is the right life. He says, I'm afraid if I hang around with this guy, he's going to ruin my life. Because it's going to mean that I've got to change everything. I don't want to do that. So he runs away from it. All right? um, I don't think his problem is weakness of the will. I think his problem is that he thinks that uh, becoming a famous general and a famous king and stuff like that are better than living the Socratic life. I mean, again, it is possible to describe anybody's actions under the form of a, or anybody's improper actions using the term, the idea of a creature, or leaving the idea of a creature out. It still works just perfectly well. Yeah. With the idea like of phrenesis um, and how he thinks it's more like, it makes more sense like with practical knowledge of what you can judge a situation in, and he says there's no like strict moral belief, wouldn't Aristotle kind of be going against like Christianity in that sense? How do you mean? Because wouldn't don't as Christians don't we believe that there's one moral belief that that we should abide by and that we should follow? No. So, so in a way, isn't Aristotle going against that by saying for any? Well, no. Um, 
we are moral reality exists and we are subject to it. But there are times, I mean, granted, there are not many of them, but there are some times when we genuinely don't know what the right thing to do is. Oh. But we, but we use our better judgment to discern. Yeah, that. but the problem is now we we'll go back to practical knowledge. We're going to use our better judgment, but reasonable people can disagree about what counts as our better judgment. Right. So what? So then, wouldn't that go against like Christianity's belief that there is like a moral code we should follow. Like, well, no, there's an ultimate moral code, and I assume that it exists or that it proceeds from the mind of God, but our minds are not comparable to the minds of God. And stuff that, and the mind of God, and stuff that he knows, we often don't. But we think we can figure it out. Well, we, do we our hope best. That we can figure it out. We do. All right, the problem is, you know, there are going to be some times when it's not clear. For example, um, remember that religious belief and moral theory um, they don't exist for their own sake. They exist for the sake of human beings. And uh, there are times when we have to do some new thinking. We can't just go back to traditions and try and figure out what we're supposed to do. Let me give you an example. Something like human cloning. In the past, people didn't get cloned, so there really wasn't a problem. But now we have uh, CRISPR technology that allows all kinds of stuff to be done with zygotes. Okay, what's morally proper there and what's morally not? Um, I'm sure that God knows, but I'm also sure that I don't. Right? I, maybe I don't know anybody that does know what the moral proprieties of human cloning are. I mean, I don't think anybody's actually figured it out yet. So in that case, that there's many different religions, but you don't know what actually one is true, but God does, but we don't? Well, I mean, you, know, you, could, you could argue that way. Remember that Christianity is not based upon reason, although it doesn't deny reason, it requires faith. Remember what Jesus says in the Gospels all the time, your faith has saved you. He never says stuff like your deep thoughts have saved you. Yeah. All right. So faith comes before reason is more important than reason. All right. It's not that I want to kick reason out, that's dangerous and mad. But um, on the other hand, reason is not going to solve all, all the problems of Christian morals, Christian life. But yeah. Do you think you could describe acrasia as perhaps like actions that work against natural law? Like the moral, because we're talking about morals and like the natural good. So could acrasia like be actions that are like in, not, maybe not so much intended to work against natural law, but like by the virtue of themselves, they work against natural law? That might be, that might be, you, you might be able to do that. On the other hand, the question would be, does the person who's violating natural law really understand that this uh, injunction of natural law is good? Or do they think that the temptation that they're succumbing to is good? Mm -hmm. Still not going to solve our problem. Although, I mean, mentioning natural law is worthwhile here. Um, what Aristotle believes is that what's good for people, the, the best kind of human life, is not um, arbitrary. It's, in fact, a fact. And it's very much rooted in biology. Uh, in other words, um, Aristotle thinks that there's a certain set of circumstances that are really good for roses. You want to put them in the ground and give them the right fertilizer and give them the right sunshine and water and all that stuff. And there's a variety of possible soil pHs or uh, you know, degrees of nitrogen in the soil, or whatever it is you want to do, that will still give you really nice roses. Okay? But there is a domain of 
things that will make roses flourish and thrive. Okay, that's an objective fact about roses. There are certain conditions in which they thrive, for example, when they have sunlight and water and uh, uh, fertilizer. There are other conditions in which it's not, when you rip it out of the ground and you, know, you pull the roots out. Okay, in the same way, that's a fact about nature, about what's good for roses. Aristotle believes that there's a natural fact here in this world about what allows people to thrive, what allows them to prosper and do well. All right. You're going to need um, a certain amount of wealth, certain family connections. You're going to need to have a certain degree of, uh, of uh, money. You're going to need a whole bunch of other things. But then you also need the right kind of education. You need to have the right habits. You need to be introduced to the intellectual virtues as well as the practical virtues. But the point is, Aristotle thinks this is a matter of fact, and that to, tell, to, to claim that um, Aristotle's account of ethics is just arbitrary or subjective, Aristotle said that's ridiculous. Uh, imagine claiming that the circumstances that make human life thrive and prosper and do well are subjective. Try doing well without any oxygen. I mean, you can't have a good life without that. So it's not a question of judgment or taste or feeling or sentiment. Oxygen is absolutely essential to a satisfactory human life. You're gonna need much more than that. But the point is, you can state that objectively. That's a matter of fact. All right. Uh, one of the things we've been touching upon that haven't fully worked out, come in the next couple of terms, is uh, the question of moral facts. Are there moral facts? Do facts refer to what is, or do facts refer to what is, but also what ought to be? And if there are such things as moral facts, facts that use ought rather than is, how do we find out about these facts? Interesting question. Yeah. Uh, just like a general, like, does, do Plato and Socrates hold these same beliefs, or we can't tell? Plato and Socrates are, for our purposes, the same guy. Okay. Um, there have been many, many books written claiming to be able to disentangle them. Um, all of them were essentially pounding the desk. I say, look, I'm a really smart guy. Here's what the answer is. Um, ultimately, we can't know. We can't separate Plato and Socrates. Right? You can't separate a dancer from. Um, the degree to which Socrates is accurately represented, the degree to which Plato embellishes it, I don't know, nobody else knows either. So when I talk about Plato, I mean Plato and Socrates. Or same sort of thing when I talk about Socrates, pretty much. I don't, I don't know that there's a possible way of distinguishing between them that's intellectually serious. It doesn't mean that people haven't tried, but I just don't think it's a way to do that. All right, here's the deal. Take five, would one of you gentlemen Take stuff off the board, and I'll put up stuff about the politics.
I got time to go get more food. Yeah, I could do that. <laughs>